0: Well, good morning. It is wonderful to be here with you all again. Greg graciously gave me some time to speak up here, and I am humbled by the opportunity to speak to you all today. Uh, My name is Rob Crespo. I'm one of the deacons here at the church, and it is my pleasure to be able to speak to you today, this third week of Advent, about joy and about what It really means to have joy. Today we had two passages that we read earlier from Malachi 4 and from Luke 1, 13 through 17. And there's a specific reason why I chose to have those passages read today. Because the question that I hope to answer for you all today, there's only one question that I hope to provide an answer to. And that is, how is the arrival of Christ a symbol of joy for the world. How is the arrival of Christ a symbol of joy for the world? In order to answer that question, we have to step back a little bit and do a little background. We have to understand what was going on in the world in Jesus' time or just prior to Jesus' arrival. And so in order to do that, we have to do some history. So we're going to spend some time looking back at the history as to why Jesus' arrival was a symbol of joy for the world. So the first thing that we have to understand is, well, what was going on during that time? When was, um, you can leave it on the history slide if you want, we're not going to get there quite yet. Um, But what was going on or when did Malachi, when was that written and when was the first Instances of Jesus coming into this world. When did that happen? What was going on during that time? What was going on in the Jewish culture? What was going on in the world? So, the first question I asked myself as I was researching this is when did Jesus come to this world? And even before that, what was going on in that time? So, what was going on in the church? And when was this chapter or this book of Malachi written? So what we do know is that Malachi specifically doesn't reveal to us an exact date and an exact time when it was written. But we can look at the context of what was going on in that uh, scripture, in that book, to figure out, to kind of place a, a date, at least a range of dates. So what we can conclude from what we're reading in the book of Malachi is that this book was written in the post-exile Jewish context, the post exile Jewish context. So, what does that mean for you? Well, the original exile, if you haven't uh, read the Old Testament recently, specifically in 2 Chronicles, the original exile was when King Nebuchadnezzar came into Judea and he conquered the area of Judea. So, King Nebuchadnezzar came in conquered Judea and took the Jews and exiled them to Babylon. Now Babylon was somewhere in between the Tigris and Euphrates River. So you can think about, they moved from basically the coast of the Mediterranean all the way out to that area in between the Tigris and Euphrates, modern day Iraq. So modern day Israel to modern day Iraq, that's where the Jews moved. And they became slaves under King Nebuchadnezzar. So when you think of King Nebuchadnezzar, what I want you to think about, if you remember your old Bible stories from uh, Sunday school when you were growing up, if you went there, was think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, right? So you guys probably remember those stories. So I'm going to just give you a quick synopsis of what happened during that time. So first, King Nebuchadnezzar exiled the Jews. He chooses some of the finest young men in that time, to come and go to school under his his schooling system and serve in his kingdom. So they're offered the best teaching in the ways of the Babylonians. They're offered food and wine from the king's storehouses. And Daniel, at that time, because of the food that was being offered, he said, this food is unclean. I can't eat this and serve God. He was convicted about that. And so he had led three other men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had all been given new names, and he said, no, we're not going to do this. And the guard was like, hold on, you have to do this, because if you don't, and you start looking weaker than everyone else, it's going to be my fault. I'm the one that's responsible for your raising up and for your, uh, for your feeding and for your health and everything like that. He said, hold on, just, Daniel said, hold on, just hear me out here, give us a week, All right. Give us a week. We're going to eat this food. We're going to eat just vegetables. Just bring us vegetables. All right. Vegetables and water. We're not going to have any wine. We're not going to have any of the choice foods, the delicacies, the meat or anything like that. Just give us vegetables. And in a week, look at us and see how we look. Just test us out. So in a week, what happens? They look healthier than everybody else. All right. And so guess what? Veggies for all my friends. At the end of all that time, they get hired for choice positions in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom because they continued to serve God and do exactly what he said, and they found favor in the eyes of their leadership. What happens next? Nebuchadnezzar, in his pride, decrees that no one else in this kingdom or no other god is to be praised but me. You're going to praise me. I'm going to set up an idol. You're going to praise me and worship me. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what do they do? Say, "Uh uh-uh. No, we're not going to do that. And they said, hold on. I'm going to give you a second chance. You guys come praise me, and we'll be all good. They said, no, we're not going to do that. So they pick Some big guys, some guys like Christian and Will, and they take those three guys, and they take them to the furnace, and not only that, they said, hey, we're going to heat up the furnace hotter than it's ever been heated up before. So hot, in fact, that the guys that took them and bound them to throw them in the furnace died when they did that. Three go into the furnace, four are in the furnace, four people are in the furnace, and then three come out of the furnace Not a hair singed on their, now you can't see, I don't have hair that I can singe up here, but if I did, not a hair on my head would be singed if I came out and I were them. That's amazing. That's a miracle, right? So, Nebuchadnezzar, we would think he would learn this lesson at this point, but he doesn't. His pride creeps up again, and then Nebuchadnezzar has two dreams, and Daniel interprets these dreams. The first dream talks about the downfall of his empire. You would think that he would listen after all of these things that are happening around him. Daniel interprets that dream, tells him about it, and he says, great, you're promoted, but he doesn't listen to Daniel. A second dream comes. This dream talks about his personal humiliation and downfall. He doesn't listen, and what happens to King Nebuchadnezzar? grows out hair all over his back, his fingernails become like claws, he has to go away and he lives out in the field, eating the grass of the field, walking around like a cow. Finally, after some period of time, he repents and turns back to God. And everything that he had lost is restored back to him. So the time frame that that happens and the time frame that King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is overthrown is about 540 to around 530, maybe 520 BC. That's when King Darius, the king of Persia, conquers Babylon and begins to rule over the Israelites instead. So first it was the Babylonians, now it's the Persians that are ruling over the Israelites. And when you think of King Darius, you should think of Daniel in the lion's den, right? You guys remember that story? Darius is tricked by his trusted advisors to have his kingdom worship him instead of anyone else and to pray to him alone. And his, so he makes a decree that no one else should be prayed to except for him. Daniel goes and prays. His trusted advisors were setting Daniel up and they saw him praying. So they bring him to the king and they say, hey, Daniel, this guy that you really liked, he's praying to someone else besides you and you decreed it. So you have, to, you have to punish him. And Darius, who really liked Daniel, was like, oh no, what did I do? So he has to follow his law that he set up. Otherwise, what does his power really mean? So he throws Daniel into the lion's den. An angel comes and shuts the lion's mouth. Daniel gives a shout out to God after one night in the den. He's removed from the den. And then the trusted advisors become... Scooby snacks for the lions. Yep. And Darius praises God. So maybe he actually learned a little bit from all of this. <clears throat> then we see that the temple is under King Darius. The temple in Judea, in Jerusalem, is started to rebuild. We get all of that from uh, the books of Ezra, the, books of, the book of Nehemiah. And this is also addressed in Malachi. If we read Malachi 1, 7 through 7-10, it talks about the offerings that are offered in the temple. Well, the offerings could not be offered in a temple if the temple had not been rebuilt. And the offerings could not have been offered if the Jews were still in exile. So during this time, if you read through Ezra and Nehemiah, we see that They find favor with King Cyrus and King Darius, and the Jews are let go to go rebuild the temple and reestablish their uh, praises and offerings and their nation in Jerusalem and Judea. So that all happens sometime. the, The temple reconstruction is finished sometime around 520 to 515 BC. So if you're trying to wrap your mind around the time frame of this or or where the books of the Bible, the minor prophets kind of place all this. Think about 2 Chronicles as the beginning of the exile. Then think that the temple begins its rebuilding then the exile starts to fade away in the books of Daniel and Ezra. And the book of Nehemiah and Malachi happen all about the same time as that in the same general time frame. So all of this puts, saying all that, the book the, from other documented sources, we see that the temple reconstruction was finished about 515 B.C., somewhere around that time frame. So 500 years before what we cr- commonly call before Christ. It could be, some other sources say, it could be even as late as 432 B.C., but at least it gives us a general window of when this happened. So, trying to build a picture for you guys. Now, why does the, the date Nehemiah, or excuse me, why do we date Nehemiah at the same time as Malachi? It's because the culture that we read about in the Jewish time in Malachi and Nehemiah are very, very close. They're very similar. What we do see in Malachi and Nehemiah both is that there is corruption in the Jewish culture, in the offering of sacrifices to God in the, uh, in the culture that they have, in the way that they interrelate with each other. Malachi documents this. In Malachi 1, 6-14, he talks about offering inadequate sacrifices to God. Same thing is happening in Nehemiah. Malachi also talks about in chapter 2 that they're breaking covenant with God and with each other. So the trust that they established, the rules that God had established with them about how to relate to each other, they are disregarding that and starting to incorporate the way that the rest of the culture uh, around them, the nations around them were acting with each other. Finally, Malachi talks about that they are not tithing to God, that they are not giving God their first fruits. They're not giving God what he told them that they were supposed to give to to him. Excuse me. So this builds a picture of the beginning of this intertestamental period. So at that time of the intertestamental period, what do we see? We see what seemingly is that God stops acting in the world, right? We see that he doesn't speak through the prophets anymore. He doesn't relate in the same way that he had done previously with his people. Well, looking back on it, you know, Monday morning quarterback, we know that God wasn't silent. He wasn't inactive. He was just preparing the stage for what he was about to do. So the next question is, okay, we've got the left book end of the time period when apparently God stops talking in the Old Testament. So now when where's the time frame where God starts talking again? So when does God break his silence? We see in Luke chapter one is the earliest recorded time frame in the New Testament that's provided to us. Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, we see God talking to Zechariah. So if you remember this period of time, what's happening is Zechariah is a priest. He's in the Levite um, tribe. He's a descendant of the Levites. And he is doing his normal service in the temple. That would normally look like one to two weeks of service at a specific time where he would offer sacrifices, he would burn the burnt offerings, he would do his work in the temple, then he would go back home. They would also do typically about three more weeks throughout the year at different times where they would serve in the temple. So Zechariah is going into the temple, he's going into the Holy of Holies to go offer sacrifices, and what happens? God comes and speaks to him. And he says, you are favored of God and I am going to provide you a son. And remember, Zechariah is kind of in the same boat as Moses was, right? He is old. And his, and his wife, oh, see, I said Moses, Abraham, right? Abraham, excuse me. He was old, right? So was his wife. His wife was old. They were past the normal age of bearing children. And he said, uh, I, I don't know about that. And he said, okay, God said, okay, I'm gonna show you this and oh, by the way, you're not gonna speak until your son's born, (laughs) all right? So we kind of learned this trend that you should listen to God the first time and do what he says or else he does, uh, he will show you why you should listen to him, right? So Zachariah goes home. We assume that sometime after that that uh, him and his wife end up conceiving a son and then six months after that is when we see Mary go to see Elizabeth. And at that time, when Mary sees Elizabeth, what happens? Yes. Baby leaps inside of her, and what does she say about Mary? Blessed Mother, because she is carrying Christ, the Savior, right? So, at that time, we believe, because of that testimony, that Mary was conceived. She may not be showing at that time, but she had conceived. So she was in the very early stages of her pregnancy. So sometime uh, about six to maybe eight months after God speaks to Zachariah, we see now that Mary is carrying a baby, all right? So building, building this picture of this time frame, this, we believe that this happened sometime um, around eight between 8 and 5 B.C. Now, you may say, why, but for Christ? We thought Jesus was born right at the, that turn of the, the time between 8 B.C. and A.D. Well, the reason why is we have other sources that kind of place other people that are in the story. So, the historian Josephus reports that King Herod died shortly after an eclipse of the moon. Okay? That's important because astronomers now, because of modeling and computers and things like that, are able to go back and they're they're able to understand the planetary motions and stars' motions, and they're able to place the lunar eclipses during the time of when King Herod was reigning, because we know when he reigned, so we can place the lunar eclipses about that time. And what they came up with was March 23rd of 5 B.C., March 13th of 4 B.C., in January 10th of 1 B.C. Other sources tell us that Herod died shortly or right around the time of 4 B.C., so that 1 B.C. date is out of there. So now we have basically a two-year period where we think that Herod uh, was at the end of his reign and probably died. So what does the Bible tell us that happened sometime before Herod died? It tells us that he died set a decree that he was going to kill every baby boy two years old and younger, right? So sometime around 4 BC, 5 BC, he makes a decree that every baby born two years old or younger was going to be killed. And why did he choose that? Well, the Magi had come. They had come from the east, and they had told them about What the scriptures had prophesied, and the Bible tells us that Herod brought in all of his wise men, and they confirmed what the Magi had said, and so they came, traveled from a long ways away, came to him and said, hey, we believe that this baby was born, that's going to be the Messiah, and he was born probably around this time, and we're going to go find him and worship him. And he's like, okay, you guys go do that, and when you find him, tell me where he is, come back and tell me, so I can go worship him as well. Well, his real plan was he was going to go kill him because he saw the Messiah, as a threat to his own kingdom. So the time the Magi show up in Judea, in Bethlehem, within a couple days journey from, uh, excuse me, in Judea, probably in Jerusalem, a couple days journey from uh, Bethlehem, they're able to go and find Jesus. They have a dream. The dream says, hey, you shouldn't go back to Herod. Don't go there. He's going to He's going to kill or try to kill the Messiah, and he's probably going to kill you guys just because he wants to cover up his traces. So they go by another way. Herod finds out. Herod sets the decree to kill all the babies, and then sometime after that, he dies. Okay? So what that tells us is that 4 to 5 B.C., Herod makes his decree-ish, give or take a year or so. So two years prior to that, 6 or 7 B.C., is when... Jesus was actually conceived and a year and a half before that is when God spoke into Zechariah's life. And God ends the time frame when he was not speaking to the people. He breaks his silence. So that puts about 400 years to maybe 450, maybe 500 years of time in between when Malachi happened and when Luke 1 happens. So that's building a picture. Now we know the time frame of what was going on, we know about when Jesus was born, we know what was going on in the culture, so now we can address the question is, why is Jesus Christ a symbol of joy for the world? Well, the first reason I want to present to you is this, is that after the apparent silence of God for 400 to 500 years, he let his people know that I have not forgotten you. I remember you. I've never forgotten you. Luke 1, 13 through 17, he talks about that this son will be for them great, a great joy and they will have great gladness because of this, that they will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. Verse 16 continues on to say, and he will turn many of the children of Israel, to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Now how does that apply to us? 2,000 years later, God has not forgotten us either. God still remembers us today. Isaiah 49, 15, and 16 says, I will not forget you because... I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. You see, God does not forget his chosen children. If you call call God your Savior, if you recognize Christ Jesus as your Lord and your atonement for your sins today, you will know that God will never forget you. No matter how hard your life is, no matter what you've experienced, no matter whether you lose your job or have, lose your home or, or living on the streets, as Greg was talking about, if you recognize God as your Savior, He has not forgotten you. Second Chronicles 7.14 reminds us that if my people who are called by my name will turn from their wicked ways and pray and repent, then I will hear from heaven and I will remember them forgive their sins, and heal their land. God remembers us, and he will forgive all of our sins. That is the first reason why Christ is a symbol of joy for the world. Secondly, instead of inadequate sacrifices, the second reason is instead of inadequate sacrifices of the people of Israel, God's perfect atonement has finally arrived. God's perfect atonement has finally arrived. See, the Bible gives us a couple examples of what inadequate sacrifices look like. All the way back in Genesis 4, we see Cain's sacrifice, and God says that he did not regard his offering. He had no regard for his offering. Saul, in 1 Samuel 13, we see Saul attempting to give a burnt offering in the midst of uh, an impending battle He recognizes, you know, I have not sought the favor of the Lord yet. And so he is waiting for Samuel, the priest, to come, and Samuel doesn't arrive He says, you know what? I'm going to take it in my own hands. And so he offers a burnt sacrifice while he was not consecrated as a priest and set aside as a priest. And what does Samuel do? Samuel arrives shortly after that, and he says, dude, really? You know the rules. You know that you're not supposed to offer sacrifices. You are not consecrated and set apart. God set up a system for his people, the Levites, to do this, and you are breaking that command. We go to 1 Samuel 13, and what does it say? He says, Samuel says, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. It's clear that there are sacrifices that are inadequate to God. Malachi 1, we, talk, we hear the same thing. We read it earlier, where, and I mentioned it earlier, where they were offering inadequate sacrifices. What was happening in that time is that they were offering blind, lame animals as sacrifices to God. You see, what they determined was that, you know what? We're not going to be able to sell those in the market we're not going to be able to get as much of a return on them. So let's go ahead and use them as our sacrifices to God because we're just going to give those up anyway and burn those. So might as well use them for, use the ones that we don't care about and can't get as much from, and let's sacrifice those to God. What does God say about that? Peter draws attention to this in 1 Peter 1, 17-21 by offering the opposite. And what does he say? He says, And if you call on him talking about God. Father, if you call him Father, the, the one who judges according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear during your time upon earth, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, not with things that are imperfect like silver or gold, but with precious blood, the blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. See, Peter understood here what true and acceptable sacrifices to God were. Unblemished and spotless lamb, the blood of Christ. Christ was offered up as our atonement to justify us before a righteous and holy God. See, the joyous news of Christ's coming is that with the way that the, the sacrificial system had, be set, had been set up in the Mosaic law, the way that the atonement uh, was supposed to be given, we recognize that it was imperfect, not, beca- not because the, the system itself was imperfect, because it was because the humans who were trying to fulfill that system were imperfect. We would never be able to fulfill the law perfectly. And because of that, Christ came and he lived the perfect life, fulfilling the Mosaic law perfectly to the T and then offering himself as the sacrifice. Because only by fulfilling the law perfectly could he be the perfect atonement for sins. And he offered himself up. So now the perfect atonement for not only the sins of the Jewish people, but our sins as well, comes through Christ Romans 4, 24 and 25 reminds us of that. It says, It will be counted to us who believe in Him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. See, that truth is, was true for the Jews back then, and it's also true for us. So if you recognize and put your faith in Christ as your atonement for your sins, then you are justified. You are righteous in the sight of God because that atonement was not just for the sins you did in the past, but it's for your sins that you will ever commit in the future because it was the perfect atonement. The third and final reason I have for you tonight that Christ's coming is a symbol of joy for the world is that instead of his people thinking that they had to make their own way to God, God provided a way to himself. John 14, one through seven, just listen to this. It's up on the board or up on the screen if you want to read it, but just listen. He said, let your, not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, in my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I would go and prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, then I'm gonna come back also and take you to myself. To where, that where I am, there you may also be. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one goes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. See, what Jesus was claiming there was something that is beautiful for us today: is that not only did he provide the atonement to cover our sins, but he provided us a way to the Father, and that's through him. By knowing him, by having relationship with him, we can go to the Father. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9 summarizes it greatly. "...being rich in mercy, because of great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of the grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. You see, the passage in John 14 is a great testament for those that are not believers. What it does is it tells you that if you are not a believer, this is the way you get there. This is how you establish relationship with God if you believe in Jesus Christ and all that he said, if you believe that he gave himself as the atonement for your sins and trust that your sins are forgiven because of his blood that's shed, and not only that, but believe that the one way to God is through his resurrection from the dead, that he has prepared a place for you, then you are saved. And for the believer... If you are a believer here today, that chapter in Ephesians reminds us and is a great truth for us. That is by grace you have been saved. That is not anything that you do, not anything that you have done. So it doesn't rely on your imperfect self. It relies on the perfect one true God who came down, condescended into this world. Didn't have to, but he chose to. He fulfilled the law perfectly. And then he suffered the most excruciating death. But death couldn't hold him even after that. He raised from the dead to go to heaven to prepare a place for us. And the truth in all of that is is that he said he's coming back. He said it himself. He is coming back. This, my friends, is the reason why Christ is a symbol of joy for the world. It was a symbol of joy for the people who were living 2,000 years ago, and it is a symbol of joy for us today. Amen. So if you would stand with me, please. As we... As we respond to this, I ask you to just pray with me where you are. Lord God, what an amazing message today of joy. What an amazing message of the joy that you have provided us through your son Jesus. This is better than anything that we could call joy that we could try to create for ourselves. It's amazing how you set up the stage 2,000 plus years ago to make the grand coming of your son a beautiful unveiling of your plan to redeem the world. God, there was so much despair in the time coming to Christ. There was so much wondering and asking, why are you not speaking, God? In some ways, I think we feel that today in our world when we look around and we see what's going on in our country and across the world. The pain, the suffering. But God, the truth that we get from that is a reminder that you are not silent. That your plan has not been overcome by the enemy that you are still ensuring that your will will be done in this world you are still in control you are still powerful and you are still with us and your son Jesus is the great joy of the world You know, if, if today, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, today is the day for you. Today's message is for all of us, not just to remind us and turn us back to God. Maybe you've been dealing with some sin in your life and you haven't turned it over to God. This is a message that reminds us to repent and turn back to God because he will provide us that great joy, the joy that we were trying to seek in other things but if you don't know God as your Lord and Savior then this message is for you as well, it's a reminder that there's nothing that you will find in this world that can provide you with the joy that the Lord Jesus Christ can nothing and all you have to do is recognize that he has done that for you He has saved you through the blood of Jesus Christ. Surrender to that atonement. Surrender to his action that he did for you. And say, God, I'm a sinner. I need you to save me. I can't do it on my own. You've got to do it for me. Take the reins of my life and be in control from now on. Forgive me of my sins and cleanse me of my unrighteousness. Mm -hmm. I want you to be in control from here on out.